We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at Mark chapter 10, the last paragraph in verse 46 through verse 52. Uh, three weeks ago, before I uh, left on my vacation to the palatial surroundings of East Texas, and you know it's a humid place in East Texas? but it's a good place to sweat the impurities out of you. And so my wife and I went out there, and three weeks ago we looked at this last of the, the, this final lesson in the training of the 12 that you saw in chapter 10 uh, in verse 35 through 45, where Jesus was approached by the mother of Peter, I'm sorry, of James and John, I want my two sons to sit at your right hand. Jesus said to her, Madam, you don't know what you're asking for. Y'all know what nepotism is in the church, where you give out church positions to your family? Uh, or do you know what simony is to where you buy from the powers that be the right to put your family in ministry? That has always plagued the church and every sort of organization. Even politics and everything else is nepotism and simony. Getting into leadership because you go around the uh, standard and you sneak in on somebody's coattails. And that is what this woman was doing. She's doing what everybody has done throughout history is let me get my kid in there. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. He said, greatness is not something that you confer. Greatness is not something you purchase it's not something you lobby for, that greatness has a coin of the realm. You pay for it. And the coin is sacrifice and suffering and servanthood and similitude to Jesus Christ, who is called in the book of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, that the coin of the realm is humility and service and sacrifice and Christ-likeness. You just do that. Well, whenever he makes that final teaching on the training of the 12 to these men who are about to step into a position of authority, it's always followed in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke by this miracle, always, because the miracle is a symbol of what he has taught in the previous paragraph. You're going to see the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And what you're going to see is, just like he taught about leadership, you're going to see the greatest of men, Jesus, go down to the lowest of men, a blind beggar, Bartimaeus. And he is going to say, what can I do for you? Like an olive garden waiter. What can I do for you? And he will make the utmost request, I would like to have life from the dead. I would like to be able to live again and to see again. And he says, go your way, your faith has saved you. And he arises to follow on the road. And so we're going to see an illustration in the servant of the Lord, what he wants to see in his people, that the greatest go to the lowest with the greatest of gift for absolutely nothing, free of charge, and they represent God to the world. Uh, this man, Bartimaeus, is going to look very familiar. He's going to look like you. 
and he's going to look like me. Those who have been touched by grace now to follow Christ. Are you with me? This was important enough to God to teach three times. So let's see what, it, what he has to say here. I don't like lists, but I'm going to give you 15 things <laughs> that you can't miss. He looks very familiar. The first is in verse 46 as to simply where it took place. He came to Jericho, as in Joshua fought the battle of. Jesus doesn't do anything in Jericho until the last day of his ministry before he goes in chapter 11, verse 1, to Jerusalem. Y'all know why he goes to Jerusalem? To die. And so this is the last teaching of the 12. Uh, Jericho is that city that was the first city to fall under the Canaanites, as in Joshua fought the battle of. And it was a cursed city, and God said, I don't want you to rebuild it, and I don't want you to pillage the city. This is a tithe of the gift of the land that I'm about to give to you. And once this city goes down, I don't want it in any way rebuilt. I will not have a rising up of Jericho. I'm going to leave it here as an example of what God thinks about perversion and sacrificing children to the idols. This is what he thinks about murder that the Canaanites did. And I want you to always have a visual of this thing. And he said that if you try to rebuild it, no matter how late in the nation's history you try to rebuild it, the rebuilder will lose his firstborn when you lay the foundation. I'll take his life. And if you persist, I will take all of your children. And when you finish up and you put the gates there, I will take your youngest. From the firstborn to the youngest, what is now God taken? Everything. If you try to go back to what I took you out of. Well, uh, if you remember, if you studied your Old Testament, there was a king who tried to do it. This was a king who built a temple to Baal. He married a follower of Baal whose name was Jezebel. And his name was Ahab. And he got a guy named Heel, H-I-E-L, the Bethelite, to rebuild the city. Maybe he thought God was just woofing about what he said. But it said he rebuilt the city and he lost his firstborn at the beginning of the foundations and his youngest at the finishing of the gates. Matthew Henry wrote about this, the great commentator. He said, God's curses are not bugbears. You know what a bugbear is? I don't either, but Matthew Henry did. I think it's similar to a booger bear. It's in the same genus species. But he was simply saying that God's threats are not idle threats. When he says, I will punish, he means I will punish. And so Jesus, well, let me just stop right there. This is the first similarity between Bartimaeus and you and me, that he came from a cursed place. And that's how the Bible sees this world. As Chris Cobble taught last week, I urge you as uh, obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts that were yours in ignorance. We came from a lost place. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world to the prince of the power of the air. Who are we talking about? 
Satan, and of the spirit that energizes, and then he labels us, sons of disobedience. And that's where we came out. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. But God. And so you and I came from a cursed place. And as a matter of fact, Jericho had old Jericho that was ruins, and then a new Jericho that was built alongside of it. And when Jesus went through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, he met the last two people that he would minister to in his ministry. You know who they were? Both men of Jericho. One was called Bartimaeus, and one was an IRS agent. And he was about this tall. A wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm coming to your house today. Okay. And so we're going to minister to Bartimaeus coming out of one of the cities and then coming out of the other one, we're going to minister to uh, Zacchaeus. Uh, both of these men, one is too lowly to receive Bartimaeus one is too sinful to receive. And both of these men are going to be scorned by the multitude. They're going to say of Bartimaeus, they sternly tell him to shut up those who led the way. Zacchaeus, they said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Jesus will say of Bartimaeus, your faith has saved you. And of Zacchaeus, uh, salvation has come to this house. He is a son of Abraham. You know what Bartimaeus means? A son of honor. So both of them were taken from the bottom, raised to the top, and Christians didn't like it because they simply were too lowly. And that's what this text is about, just what he was teaching to the James and John, that I am the greatest and I come to the lowest and I'm going to raise him to the top for nothing. And that's what I expect you to do. Is there anybody that is surrounding you in your Christian life that you frankly are hoping they won't get saved so you don't have to see them in heaven? <laughs> that are just lowly. I've told you the story about when I was working at a place when I was a young Christian. And there was a guy working there named Larry. We just called him 99 because he weighed 99 pounds. And he uh, had gotten a girl pregnant and they had a child and he married her. And the child died of pneumonia. And we were sitting on the dock, and I was listening to him talk. And he, was, he took a drag off his cigarette. He said, yeah, he died. I let the little SOB die. And we all looked at him. So what did you say? Yeah, I let the little SOB die. And somebody asked there, why? He said, $2,500 insurance. And shortly thereafter, the conversation went into eternal things. And I remember going to share the gospel, and I felt a reticence. You know why? I was afraid he might believe it, and he would become my brother. Aren't I disgusting? You don't have to amen or anything. 
But a lot of times we have a very strict code as to who we will let come in here. Matter of fact, when you get to heaven, you may run into uh, Manuel Noriega. Do y'all remember him? He was led to Christ by a minister from McKinney. Noriega, a South American dictator. Noriega and Nelson are real close in heaven. We're right down the street, you know? Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar is in the, one of the houses there too. So, yeah, God does not take a vote over who wants to blackball this guy. It's not getting into a fraternity that God can pick his elect from anywhere. Amen. And our job is not to scorn them. So both of these men get scorned. Both of them are shown mercy. The highest man, the lowest man, the greatest gift for nothing. There is no recompense. And that's what a servant is. And that's why God has left you. And Jesus taught that, and Jesus is going to show that. And that is why God has left you. When I was at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Howard Hendricks said, the first great question you have to ask is, why did God choose you? And there is no answer to that. And you have to live with that. It is grace. And the next question is, why has God left you here? Why don't we just baptize you and hold you under and send you to glory? All right. Why has he left you? To do what Jesus did. And that's right here. We don't get to pick and choose who the elect are. And so, with that bit of encouragement, let's take a look. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar. Secondly, this man is blind. Blind is where you have no light and you cannot see reality. And that is why, when, you know, when God makes man, the first thing he does is he creates light from the very face of God to separate the light from the darkness called day and night. Man had light, and thus he can navigate the world that is around him, and he won't hurt himself. Whenever you lose your vision, you either have to have a dog, you have to have a person, you have to have a cane, so you don't hurt yourself because you can't live in the reality of what is there. Can you imagine being blind up on this stage and you have to now fall off this stage and you can die? And so the world's a scary place when you can't see. And the Bible speaks of us as being blinded in our sin. That's why Jesus healed a blind man and said, I am the light of the world. And so this man cannot see reality. When Adam opened his eyes, he could see God and everything made sense in the light of God. Man is blind. And all he can, you remember the story of the, uh, the Indians feeling upon, the New Delhi Indians feeling on the uh, elephants, wanting to know what an elephant was. And one felt his ear and thought it was a big leaf. The other feels a leg and thinks it's a tree trunk. The other thinks it's a snake because he has the, uh, what do you call that thing? Trunk, yeah. And they all see a piece, but they can't see the whole. And that's what happens to man. He's blind, and he can't make sense out of anything. He can study its mechanics, its mathematics, and its matter, but he can't study its meaning. He can have a sex drive, but he doesn't know what sex is. He can want to get married, but he doesn't know what a husband and a wife is. He can have kids, but he doesn't know what kids are. Would you say that our culture is suffering from blindness? Yeah, we have no mortar to our bricks. We can't see. And so this fellow is just like you and I. Quote, darkened in our understanding because of the ignorance that is in us. 
And we were without God, hopeless in the world. Ephesians 2. We were darkened. And in verse 51, he said, I want to regain my sight. He once could see, and he had a memory of what things were like, but he can't see anymore. So man in the image of God uh, has a memory, an instinct of right and wrong, and wanting to look at life, man, woman, humans, and to know what they are there. He has an instinct. I remember sharing the gospel once with a guy at Myotech Gym. He was an atheist. And he was a biologist, had his doctorate in biology, hard, atheistic evolutionist. But he had an opening that I wormed my way in. He had a little son who was born missing a chromosome. And he was highly physically and mentally challenged. And they weren't even sure how long he would live. And he could not stop himself from this irrepressible love that he felt for that little boy. And you could see it in him. He loved him with a protective love. This guy was about six foot, weighed about 300 pounds. So I was very cautious in my witnessing to him. And he loved this little boy. And I said to him, I said, you know, in an evolutionary scheme, we ought to just let little Kurt starve to death because that's what nature would do. Amen? Nature would consider him baggage and he would die because nature is not moral. And I said, if we're just animals, you know, Kurt takes up oxygen, he takes up food, and he takes up space. Why don't we just let him die? That was very bold on my part. And he just looked at me. And I thought about saying to him, checkmate, I've got you. If you say, I love him, I've got you. Only a Christian can say that. Nature can't say that. Now he is an elder in a Lutheran church. He got saved. And so you and I, he had a memory of something good and something glorious, but he had lost it. Uh, fourthly, he is a beggar. When you are blind, you now, in a sense, are, have lost your independence and you are dependent on man to give you short-term help and to guide you in life. And so man without sight becomes a beggar that he will go to philosophy, education, religion, science, politics, economics, psychology, hedonism, something to momentarily get him through. But he will not stop to talk about the infinite personal God alienated to him because of sin and of the need for reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Have y'all ever heard that on CNN? On Canaanite News Network? You haven't heard it, have you? Because they will only beg. They will not go to the nexus of the problem that is man's alienation. And if on that program you talk about God, truth, Bible, Jesus, Calvary, faith, Will they let you continue? They will cut you off. And so man will not be reconciled to God, but he will beg day by day, 
something get him through to the grave, and that is Bartimaeus. A fifth thing about him, the name Bartimaeus means son of honor. Timae, ever name your kid Timothy? Timotheos, to honor God. Bartimaeus means Bar, the son of honor. Uh, there was a day when parents took this little boy and named him the son of honor, but he became blind, and for some reason he finds himself as an untouchable. It was felt among the Pharisees that evil happened to you because of sin. For whose sins was he made blind? His or his parents? For no sins was he made blind, said Jesus, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man is blinded, and so man in God's image was originally a son of honor. What is man that thou art concerned with him, or the son of man that thou dost take note of him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast put all things under his feet and hast put him his head over all things. That was man. He was called, like Eric Sauer wrote in his book on man, he was the king of the earth. But as Hebrew says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. When you read the first page, the front page, do you see the glory of man in the image of God? You don't. How many people were killed in Chicago today? Killed in Dallas, killed in Fort Worth, killed in Minneapolis, killed in, in New Orleans. Man is no longer a son of honor. It's like he is just a, oh, I think Blaise Pascal said he is a centaur. He's half angel, half demon. That is man. And so he has fallen. And then in verse 47, one day he hears, it is Jesus the Nazarene. Something comes to him from the outside. Not another person that can help him, but there has come the Messiah, the Son of God, becoming the Son of David, who has come the Word made flesh. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And he shall be called Emmanuel. That means God with us. And now the, the gap, the royal gorge has been breached by God. He's come to us. And so what would we call this? Whenever you have a message from the outside that is a good message, it's called a good spell. What word do we get? Gospel. He hears the gospel. Somebody has come from heaven to earth. And so he begins to cry out. And he cries out in verse 47 for mercy. Verse 51, to regain my sight. He asked an impossible thing to restore his sight. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that technologically in medicine? To restore the sight, but we just can't do it. We can take away cataracts, but we can't restore sight. I want an impossible thing. I want the highest of gifts from the greatest of people to the lowest of men. Is, will this fairy tale be real, that a Prince Charming can come and raise me up? Is it possible? You know, when I heard the gospel for the first time in my room at North Texas State, and that guy shared the gospel, he said to my roommate, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. 
what's a Christian? Somebody that keeps the Ten Commandments, of which I nodded. And he said, the Ten Commandments weren't given to us to live by, but to show us we couldn't. That it could drive us to the cross to be saved. And when he said that, it all in my giant phys ed brain came together. Okay. And I understood that Christ was God doing what man could not and that God had come near and he had lived the life that I couldn't live. He had died the death that I deserve. It was now finished and I could have him for the asking. And I remember the thought going through my mind, if this is not truth, it should be. It should be required. But I didn't trust Christ because I knew that I couldn't have Christ and me be in the front seat with him. One of us had to move. And so a short while later, I trusted Christ. But that was the thought that went through my mind. The highest person with the greatest gift to the lowest of people. And it's done. It's here for the asking. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I promise you, I will come in. And so he calls out for mercy. And in verse 48, look at the early Christians. Matthew says, those who led the way. Mark says, many were sternly telling him to be quiet. Living Bible says, shut up. I don't know if it says it, but it ought to. Okay. And so the church leaders scorned him. That's why this parable is here, this story. Do we tend to do this? You're not worthy of grace. The early church, uh, whenever the, the non-Hebrew-speaking Jews trust Christ, the Hellenists, they had a problem. We're not going to feed their widows. They're not worthy of the rest of us. They don't speak Hebrew. And then the Samaritans come to faith. And they send out Peter to make sure that they're normal. And then you have the um, Cornelius coming to faith. And they challenge Paul. You ate with these guys? You ate shrimp, son. I just threw that in there. Okay. You ate with these people? And then when the Gentiles trusted Christ on Paul's first missionary journey, they had a church council. They're going to have to become Jews and get circumcised. And they had to have a council. So don't think that the early church were these holy people that just had arms open. Christ did, but they didn't. And they had to have a council when you showed up in the front door, Gentiles. And so the church leaders scorned him. Can this happen? Yes, it can. Y'all ever heard of a guy named Jimmy Cagney? You dirty rat. All right. Jimmy Cagney was a Irishman in New York. His father died when he was young. And the church, Catholic church, wouldn't bury him because he didn't have the money to pay for the priest. And so they just let his father lay there. And Jimmy Cagney was so irate over it that he made a vow he would never enter a church again. And he did not enter a church for the whole of his life until he died and they buried him in one because he was so offended and so can Christians minister that are not on the level of Jesus Christ? Yeah, we see a great disparity between Christ and his people. And so they sternly told him to shut up. But you'll notice in 48, he kept crying all the more. You can't let 
your relationship to God be dictated by those who are not obedient. Did y'all all hear the brilliance of that? You can't let your relationship with God be dictated by those that are not consistent. Two of the guys that ministered to me in Campus Crusade were unfaithful to their wives. You remember I've talked to you about the guy that came in a room, shared the gospel, and I came to faith? He died of AIDS because he had a besetting sin of homosexuality. He fell into it with the wrong guy and died of AIDS. Now, that's, those are my spiritual parents right there. It didn't affect me because that has nothing to do with me. You remember where Christ says to Peter, someday they're going to lead you away to where you don't want to go. This he spake of the death by which you would glorify God. And Peter immediately looked at John and said, how about him? And Jesus said to him, what if I want him to remain until I come? What if his life is nothing but a bowl of cherries and he is going to not have disease, not going to have death? He is going to live all the way until I return. Watch that to you. If you die in the next few years, which he did, or he lives for the next 20 centuries, what's that to you? You don't have to know his story. You have to know your story. You follow me. Isn't that good? So don't be, what's the Greek word? Gritchen. I just made that up. Okay. <laughs> don't you be griping about the hand that's dealt you. Well, how about this guy? That's his story. You don't get to know his story. That's what C.S. Lewis said. You don't get to know his story. This is your story. And that's what you're to do. And so you can't let somebody else dictate your Christian faith. I don't like to come to church because it's full of hypocrites. No, it ain't. There's room for some more. Come on in here, all right? I think we've got a hypocrite class that meets in uh, SMC. The holy rollers are over here. Okay. And so the church's leaders scorned him. And that's why the text is here. That's set right in the middle. We don't do like Jesus. The text isn't here to exhort Christ. It's here to exhort us. Amen. We can't call unholy what God has called holy, as he said to Peter. Well, in verse 49, y'all see the first three words there? They're number nine in our list. What's your first three words say? And Jesus stopped. Isn't that great? Jesus stopped. The greatest to the lowest, and he stops. He turns none away. And they said to him in verse 49, take courage, he's calling you. If you're a thief on a cross and you live in sin for all of your life and in the last few minutes, you say, Jesus, remember me. I have nothing else to offer. I can't brag about that I earned salvation. All I want you to know is I did one thing. Before I died, I believed in you. That's called sola fide. Did Jesus take him? Today, you, me, paradise. How about the centurion? Surely this man was innocent. He accepted him. How about a Sanhedrinist? Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea. He accepted them. He never turns a man away. Are you glad? He never turns you away. He never calls you to go to purgatory and work off your debt. Today, paradise. Jesus stopped. And in verse 50, 
the man throws aside his cloak. He said goodbye to the past, and he goes to the voice. All I can hear is his voice. Dissenting voices, nobody coming near. I hear his voice. When they said he is calling for you, that's in the imperfect. Come here, come here. Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus. The sheep hear my voice, and he came. I've heard this in so many testimonies of former Southern Baptists. Let me explain. That were out there in about the eighth verse of Just As I Am. And they heard God calling. He touched their heart, and they came. One of our workers here in the church office is Penny Wooten, and she's about two foot one from Haskell, Texas. And she trusted Christ when she was a little bitty girl, seven years old. And she said, I knew it was for me. And I wanted to go up there, but there was a great big six-footer standing on the inside of the aisle. She said, I bowled my way over him. <laughs> she went to the voice and got saved. One time I did a, I was in Louisville and they showed a film on the rapture. And I was the guy that gave the altar call. And it was one of them hard films on the rapture. I mean, where you see people in hell. I mean, it's, it's original footage. Okay. I mean, it's a hard film. Okay. And I got up in the end and said, if you want to come to Christ and know Christ and avoid the wrath of God, come. And we had a meeting back in the green room of people that wanted to trust Christ. And we got the little meeting going and we heard something out front. So we had shut the door. And the pastor looked out there and then saw that it was a little five-year-old boy and it was his grandson. And he thought he was just coming to see Paul Paul. No, he was coming to accept, uh, you know, get away from the wrath of God. This was a wicked five-year-old. <laughs> but grandpa closed the door on him, like, go away. And I couldn't speak because this kid was screaming and beating on that door. He had heard the voice and he was coming. And so I don't know where he is today, but he got saved then, I'll assure you. And so this guy says goodbye to my past. It's done. Threw aside his beggar's cloth. I'm going to Christ. And in verse 51, what does Jesus say? What can I do for you? Sounds like, like I say, an, an, an olive garden waiter. What can I do for you? This is the servant of the Lord. It's the same thing that he said in verse 36 of that same chapter to his aunt. What can I do for you? That's what we are. Amen? We're servants. What can I do for you? Would you like to know him? Well, come, come on. Silver and gold have I none. But what I do have I give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Come on. Uh, verse 52, there is a pronouncement. I want to regain my sight. Verse 52, go. Your faith, the Greek says, has saved you. It is a symbol. You come with no power on your own to the voice of the Messiah. And he that is prophesied, he makes the lame to walk again and makes the blind to see, gives him sight. You are, I pronounce you, saved by faith. Question, is it that easy? Yes.
The question you have to ask is, easy for who? Easy for you and I. Was it easy for Jesus? Somebody had to pay. Somebody had to live the life you had forfeited, and he did it all the way to Gethsemane. And so now we are saved by faith alone. Because God wants us to be lazy? No, because God is competent. How good do you have to be to go to heaven? As good as God. You can't do that. Did Jesus do that? He did it. What do you have to do to go to heaven? You've got to get rid of your sin. You've got to be punished. We can't do that. Jesus did that. You have to rise from the dead to vindicate it. You can't do that. Jesus did that. You've got to ascend into heaven. You can't do that. He did that. You've got to sit at the right hand of God and to hear the words, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You can't do any of that. That is why the work of salvation is infinitely difficult. Jesus did it all. And thus he can say, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I stand at the door and knock, open the door, I come in. Promise, you'll never have to worry about me turning you away. And so, the pronouncement, come. And in verse 52, there is victory in Jesus. Immediately, he regained his sight. We sing in one of our hymns, uh, sky above is deeper blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know, as now I know, that I am his and he is mine. And so everything gets made right. And so he can see. He is restored back to the Garden of Eden. And at verse 52, the response, he follows Jesus. The demoniac was healed and jumped in the boat. Mary Magdalene followed after Christ. Matthew followed after Christ. Zacchaeus invited him into his home. The end of darkness is the beginning of a new life. And lastly, where will it lead? The path? As they approached, what's the word? Jerusalem. What will he do in Jerusalem? He will die. And that's where the road leads, is rejection and death. But the other side of death, have y'all read ahead in your Bible? We win. That's the other part. Now, there's a great lesson here, and I want to show you something. This is Jericho. There's no miracles in the New Testament in Jericho. The Old Testament, there's only one. Y'all remember a guy named Elijah? The first of the prophetic order. He is caught away into glory after preaching the wrath of God. And then his second in command follows him, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was wrath. Elisha is the greatest miracle worker in the Old Testament. He's second to Jesus. And every miracle he does is life over death. Elijah precipitates and prefaces the role of what New Testament person? John the Baptist. 
who said the wrath of God is at hand. John lived for three years and was gone, kind of like Elijah. And then here comes Elisha, Christ. And he brings life from the dead. And at the end of Elisha's ministry, after showing mercy, he steps out and now Jehu comes to bring judgment. And so Elisha is a great picture of Christ. I want you to look at the only Old Testament reference to a miracle in Jericho. Just real quickly, flip over to 2 Kings chapter 2. Back in that clean part of your Bible. 2 Kings chapter 2. This is the only, I believe, other reference to an event in Jericho because Jericho was off limits. Elisha begins his ministry where Christ ended his ministry is in Jericho. In verse 19, the men of the city said to Elisha, verse 18, the city of Jericho, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, the land is unfruitful. Has anybody here ever been to Jericho? I've been there. And it's the water pops up into a spring. And that is why they believe that Jericho is the oldest inhabited place on the earth after the flood is Jericho. They have like 10 levels of Jericho that you can dig down. And the water pops up and there are palm trees. It's called the city of the palms. It's right in the middle of the desert. And here it is. And uh, I remember sitting on the edge of a, of a wall eating an Eskimo pie, all right, in Jericho. And it just, all this stuff pops up. The, the problem, these guys say the city looks good, but the land is unfruitful because our spring is bad. Is that a great picture of man? The cities look to be very good, but when you get down in the back alleys, you can't be out after dark because it's scary. That school looks good there with its Ivy League walls, but you better be careful if you send your kid there. So it's scary. Well, that's life. And so he says in verse 20, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. Salt is a preservative. It is said that the covenants of God were covenants of salt. We're going to take that which symbolizes old, ancient truth, and we're going to put it in a new jar. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing glory may not be of ourselves, but of God. I'm going to take old truth and a new man. Where is the classic time in your Bible that in verse 21, we come to the spring of man and the truth of God is carried into it by a brand new person. It's right there that you saw the ancient truth of God brought into the pit of the fall, the sin of man, by a brand new jar, Christ, the Holy One of God. And in verse 21, we throw the salt into it, into the waters. We're not going to try to fix marriages. We're not going to try to fix psychological profiles. We're going to go to the heart you know, I, as a young kid, always wanted to make my life count for something, but I couldn't find anything to die for. When I trusted Christ and I saw another guy come to Christ, 
Then I watched his girlfriend come to Christ. Then I watched other people come to Christ. I said, this is worth dying for because you can go to the heart of man and change him. And that's what Elisha does. It's what Christ does. And to you and I, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We go to the heart of the world, the spring of man. Guard your heart, my son, for out of it come the springs of life. And we bring them back to the old truth of God, but it has to be presented through a new jar, newness. And we see people come to faith. And sure enough, verse 21, I have purified these waters, thus says the Lord. There shall no longer be any death or unfruitfulness. The waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Elisha did it. Jesus fulfilled it. You and I carry it out. Paul said, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of God and stewards of the mysteries of Christ. And so, what's the lesson here for us? Ministers of God are to be like Jesus where the greatest of men goes to the lowest of men and brings the greatest of gifts for no remuneration whatsoever. No matter how we are treated, we are servants. Amen? So who do you have out there in your life that is a son of honor that is lost in the dark? God sent you to him. Father in heaven, Thank you for this time in your word. As all the uh, approximately about 3,000 of us can circle around the Bible like orphans around a fire and to where we can get a glimpse into the heart of God as seen in this dimensional man and his audible words and his physical actions that are frozen in the Bible. And we can see on our terms who God is. If you told us about politics, if you told us about anything else and did not tell us of Jesus, we are forever in the dark. And this is all we need. Give me Jesus. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in him you have been made complete. So do not let yourself be taken captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the traditions of men, according to the deceitfulness and scheming, rather than according to Christ, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in a body. And in him you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and all angelic authority. In him we are complete. In him we have been circumcised. With a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot nor wrinkle, but holy and blameless before him in love. So send us, God. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Give us the chance to blind beggars going day by day with their hands out to place within them their highest dreams. An answer so high that their minds cannot configure it. And you've given that to us. Lead us, we'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen.